The Tulane Executive MBA program provided me with a perfect combination of soft skills and the confidence necessary to run my biotech company. My name is Trivia Frazier. I'm the president and CEO of Obatala Sciences Incorporated. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. And by Orange Theory Fitness, delivering fitness results for a healthier world. From Commander's Palace Restaurant in the Garden District in New Orleans, we're out to lunch with Peter Raschuti. Peter Raschuti is Tulane University's A.B. Freeman School of Business professor and director of the award-winning Birkenrode Reports. It's business, New Orleans style. Hi, I'm Peter Raschuti. Welcome to Out to Lunch. We hear a lot in the national conversation about the current opioid crisis. Locally in Louisiana, there are reportedly more prescriptions for opioids than there are citizens of the state. One of the cures for this problem is to have doctors stop writing so many prescriptions. That is all well and good for the future, but for New Orleanians currently addicted to drugs who want to cure their addiction now, getting into a rehab program has often meant leaving New Orleans and Louisiana. Chris McMahon is president and CEO of a company that is addressing this issue. Long Branch Recovery has an outpatient clinic in Old Metairie, and they have recently opened an inpatient residential facility in Abita Springs. Chris, welcome out to lunch. Thank you for having me. If you've ever had a medical emergency and called an ambulance, you will have discovered that if your insurance doesn't cover it, your transportation to hospital costs you somewhere around $1,000. The only place the ambulance will take you is the hospital emergency room. Hospital emergency rooms are generally overrun with patients, the reason being that a percentage of them don't need to be there because their condition is not actually a medical emergency. A local New Orleans company, Ready Responders, is setting out to solve both the ambulance and the emergency room issues. Ready Responders has a network of alternative EMT workers who arrive at the scene of an emergency on foot, bicycle, and in their own car. Rather than automatically take the patient to the ER, the responder makes a case-based decision about what should happen to the patient. That might be patching them up and sending them on their way or putting them in touch with the right medical professional in the community other than just the ER. Justin Dangle is the CEO and co-founder of Ready Responders. Justin, welcome out to lunch. Uh, thank you for having me. Now, Chris, um, let's, let's start with the, some of these intro questions. We hear so much about rehab, but what is it? You mentioned, for instance, in your, in your literature that you've got a six-to-one ratio, for instance, between, I guess, uh, uh, supporters and, and patients. Uh, you know, who are those six people? How does this work? Okay, so um, evidence-based treatment um, has come up with some methods that they feel help resuscitate someone out of drug addiction. And those methods usually entail um, extended inpatient residential treatment. So what we mean when we say six to one, first off, is counselors, licensed uh, drug counselor to patient. But we also throw a whole bunch of other methodologies at it. We have a psychiatrist who actually meets with the patient once a week, an addictionologist, physician who actually meets with the patient once a week and upon admission. Um, We have some really what we think is cutting edge stuff. We have a psychologist who goes through trauma 
with the patient. A lot of people don't realize that most drug addicts and severe alcoholics, by the time they get to a treatment center, have been through, even if they just put themselves through it, a whole bunch of trauma. Um, you know, as narcotics are illegal, it's not exactly the Boy Scouts selling that right. stuff. So you find yourself in really horrifying situations and they've been through a lot. And they, these emotional needs have to be met as well as the physical medical side, the drug addiction. So we basically, it's a, it's a program of bringing someone back to life, so to speak, and um, helping them deal with the past, reconcile with, with where they're at. And because you have two kind of different kinds of patients, right? You've got that inpatient and then what is the um what is the outpatient one so there's like? an outpatient one on Metairie road and i would say that they're really not two different kinds of patients as much as they're two different stages in their addiction okay. the outpatient maybe they haven't started drinking every day they haven't lost the job the wife the house yet so what we're able to do is kind of raise the bottom for those people that's what we call it in the industry and get them treatment before they go down that road whereas the inpatient typically um if someone's doing narcotics every day for example you're not going to get better with therapy sessions two, three, four times a week. You really need an inpatient treatment center to get better. And then we're going to throw the whole book at it. We're going to throw every methodology we know and um, go from there. Justin, I understand the way ready responders works is sometimes someone calls 911 and the 911 dispatcher decides whether to call an ambulance or your alternative ready responder network. If the dispatcher decides to call ready responders and you send your closest person, I guess this is kind of like Uber sends the closest car. The ready responder person then decides what should happen to the patient, whether it's taking them to the hospital or a clinic or maybe even assessing that they're okay and, and sending them back home. If things go badly and a patient dies in an ambulance or a hospital, there is rarely any legal fallout. However, if there is some sort of medical complication with one of your patients uh, and the 911 dispatcher should have called an ambulance instead of you or ready responder person diagnoses the patient incorrectly, it seems like you can have some very serious repercussions for your business model. I'm sure you've been asked this many times. So how do you deal with this liability issue? Yeah, so uh, let me dig in and, and clarify a little bit about how our model works and what it is we're trying to do. So, so today here in Louisiana, and this is just an example that is widely represented around the country, the whole state budget here is about $20 billion. $8 billion of that is Medicaid. 40%? Yeah, wow. it's for Medicaid. And about $1.5 of that $8 billion, or 7.5% of the whole state budget, are Medicaid patients utilizing the emergency department. About 90% of those visits, according to most studies, somewhere between 80 and 90% of those visits are non-emergent. They're people that we as a community are failing to create access to care that makes it easy for them to find an alternative. And I think a lot of people like to use language describing people using the ED when they're not in an emergency and blaming them for it. But the reality is that it can be really hard to find access to care, uh, particularly if you're on Medicaid. So what our project's about is expanding access to care. And the circumstance you described, if somebody calls us directly or we get transferred by one of our clinical partners, in all cases, whether it's an actual 911 center or a center that a partner of ours operates, we run through the same structured questions uh, that you would get asked by a 911 operator to determine acuity. Same thing that happens when you call 911 at New Orleans EMS or anywhere around the country. If somebody's a, a, acute and needs an ambulance, they're going to get an ambulance right away. If not, uh, we'll dispatch. And then when we get on the scene, our EMT's job is really to make sure the person gets the care they need. So the first step is to run through a set of protocols that were developed by the Houston uh, EMS and Fire Department. These are proven protocols uh, called the Ethan protocols that determine eligibility for telehealth. 
Um, they've been now peer-reviewed in three papers and have seen over the decade or so they've been in use, zero examples of somebody not going to the hospital when they should. In all cases, when somebody has to go to the hospital, we initiate a telehealth consult with a doctor via video on an iPad that all of our, our people carry. So what you're effectively getting, uh, you have an alternative uh, right now, which is to go to the ED uh, or to have somebody come to your house, uh, do a basic assessment, help get you a video consult with a doctor, and then at the end of the call, um, we can help get you an appointment with a primary care doctor. We can help get you an appointment at an urgent care center or a federally qualified health center if that's appropriate. We can get you uh, transportation to and from the pharmacy uh, if you need a prescription. So the idea is that rather than taking the idea that has existed in healthcare, which is to make it hard to access so that people don't misuse it, is to create a really cost-effective alternative so that people can get the care they need uh, without um, spending $2,000 per appointment at the ED. And uh, most of the insurance payers in the state work with us now. Um, so we're, uh, we're still pre-launch. Most of the payers in the state work with us. And, uh, um, you know, our, we, we've got 80 people in training right now to work in our program. Uh, about a third of them are New Orleans firefighters. Okay. Um, some are people that, that you know, y- used to be EMTs or paramedics, used to work in that field and uh, maybe have another job and are looking for some part-time work so and also serve their community. Firefighters work kind of an odd calendar, right? They, firefighters they work 24 hours on, 48 off. Okay. So many of them... Uh, at this point, I have a part-time job, and we, we like to create a great opportunity for them to continue to serve their community and make a little bit of money on the side. Uh, now, I would assume you get there faster than a traditional ambulance. Um, it, it, it depends. I think in, in many cases, particularly as we scale, I think we'll be able to get there quickly. And we're in discussions and have been in discussions for a while, and this isn't a secret with the city about potentially helping to support 911. Uh, ultimately, hopefully... As we prove it uh, uh, to the city that we're, we're worthy, hopefully we'll be able to get the, help the city with some of the non-acute calls that come to 911. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Peter Raschuti. I'm talking with Justin Dangle from Ready Responders, the on-demand EMT network, and Chris McMahon from Addiction Rehab Facility Long Branch Recovery. We'll be right back after this very brief break. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Peter Raschuti. I'm talking with Justin Dangle from Ready Responders, the on-demand EMT network, and Chris McMahon from Addiction Rehab Facility Long Branch Recovery. Now, Chris, you this took some money to get this this going on both ends, both the uh, Old Metairie and the Abita Springs side. Um, how did you do it? Uh, where did it come from? And I guess you've had some you've had success in other medical related endeavors. Did that help? Uh, yes, <laughs> the short answer. Um, so in about 2011, I started a company called Passages Hospice. <clears throat> I co-founded it with um, my business partner, Dr. Dan Harlan. And um, some really amazing stuff happened. It was, um, we started off with probably three employees and we built a giant pretty building. Uh, we tried to do something new and different in the hospice arena where uh, historically, our competitors had kind of been treating people in rundown old folks' homes. We built a little mini uh, Windsor Court, I used okay. to call it, uptown, right in the middle of, in between three hospitals. And um, we went from three employees to 115 employees in three years. It exploded. So that kind of gave me the gravitas to um, get into other areas. So we expanded the hospice, of course. We, we bought some other healthcare uh, companies related to hospice. And then um, Dr. Harlan had acquired a property on the North Shore, this big, beautiful plantation that had been a former John Besh restaurant. And we realized that um, 
the need on the North Shore for a really high quality addiction treatment center was probably the greatest need that existed in the state. And we also realized that we had this big plantation and he had made me a, uh, I bought into that and, and we were we were partners on it, that it was just basically sitting there. So I brought in some friends of mine who I had met 20 years ago, who they themselves had been running treatment centers. Um, a lot of these people were from Minnesota, a place where I actually myself got sober almost 18 years ago. And um, That's a famous facility, it's right? It's very yeah. famous, yeah. Yeah, Hazleton. So it's... Um, so basically, these are guys that, you know, we all had non-fancy jobs back then. We were night techs at treatment centers and, you know, in grad school and stuff like that. But you fast forward 20 years, they were running their own treatment centers. They were kind of, you know, bigger deals now. And um, I brought them down, and I like to say they gave me the idiot's guide to uh, launching a treatment center. They, um, they helped me build. Yellow Dummies book, yeah. obviously. So <laughs> it's a, it was definitely a labor of passion. So I probably have been working with the city, the town of Abita for three years. I personally flew around the company, uh, country finding investors. And um, there were a lot of people who believed in the mission and based on my track record with the hospice, decided to back us. Let me ask you, like, sometimes I like to ask questions, these investment backers, what, were the, what was the most common question they asked you? Um, it was twofold. Okay, and this is just, this is a money question, right? Okay, so first off, me and my partner, um, we're in for most of it, and we're on the hook for the first half million in mistakes. So there you go. <laughs> the fact that he and like I that. own all the mistakes, <laughs> up to a half million, that swayed a lot of people, because we put our money where our mouth is. So, the, and then we donated the land, which was worth over a million. So we we really put up um our own, uh, our own, you know, money, our own stuff, and um, I think that gave them the security they needed, along with our track record in other areas of healthcare to uh, to back this. And then, honestly, I'd say a strong second or third was most of the investors had loved ones who were suffering with addiction, or had passed away, or were sober and loving life, and um, and I think that makes a big mark on people. I think they realize people can recover. Now, Justin, you're doing something that. Uh, it seems to be disruptive, uh, very innovative. Uh, and I read that you kind of took this from what you saw in Israel. Yes. In uh, 2014, I was bought out of a company I've been running for many years and uh, uh, took some time off to work with an NGO in the Middle East. And while I was traveling there, I, I encountered a program that they were running in Israel that is, uh, is a, a solid cousin of what we're doing here. Um, and so what they had done in Israel is they had recruited and trained and equipped a network of part-time EMTs similar to us and really transformed their pre-hospital care system. So they had lowered response times across the system from 10 minutes to three minutes, saves about 5,000 lives a year in Israel, and really created a whole bunch of new care options for people that took pressure off the emergency departments, took pressure off the, the rest of the healthcare system, and generally led to a, a, a healthier uh, community. And so I thought this was pretty cool and uh, hadn't worked in healthcare. I was an internet guy. The last company was my third exit uh, and uh, was looking for something uh, to do that, that could have a real impact on the community and reached out to a friend of mine here in New Orleans, a guy named Ben Swig, uh, who was a uh, Tulane uh, graduate with a Master's of Public Health and an MBA. And We've got his photo everywhere. Very proud of him. And, well, you should be. He's a, uh, and I'm, I'm proud to work with him as well. And uh, anyway, he was also a paramedic in the system here in New Orleans and was the perfect guy to figure out if this was a good idea or not. And after we batted around for a while, uh, he said to me, not only do I think it's a good idea, I'll be your co-founder. Uh, so I moved down to New Orleans and uh, we started the company. And that was a little over a year ago, about a year and a half ago. Why? 
I when I'm when I'm thinking about your program, one of the things that starts out is how did you get that relationship with the city? I mean, how did you pitch a very new idea to them? Yeah, so we're still in discussions with the city. What we have is a lot of really good clinical partners around the city uh, and a bunch of other relationships that uh, help us find the patients that really need our help. And our relationships with our payer partners are a great way to access patients. So um, there is uh, sadly more demand uh, than, than we'll be able to easily to meet in the, in the city, and we're working to build capacity to be able to integrate uh, with the city and are hopeful uh, that we'll be able to work with 911. Uh, we have a great relationship with uh, Chief Flores at, at 911 and Chief McConnell with the fire department and uh, uh, Mayor Cantrell has been I think tracking our progress as a city councilor as of several others and we're hoping to ultimately be a part of the 911 response but in the meantime uh, I think our first goal is really to get get on the street and create this alternative for people uh, that need care. Most of the cases that we're going to be dealing are ones that won't even involve an ambulance at all. Uh, there are people that, uh, the number one reason why people call 911 is upper respiratory infection. And 85% of the people that go to the emergency department don't go via ambulance. Um, and in so, some ways, definitionally, are probably not in an acute state. So we're really looking to create an alternative for people. Uh, the, the ED is not the right place to go uh, if you're not really sick, because you might wait four to six hours. Uh, and, uh, you know, our, we have great emergency departments in this city. Uh, our medical director, Chris Voigt, is one of the guys at Auctioner. I mean, you know, UMC does a great job and all the other ones do a great job, but they're really set up to deal with people who are in an acute state. And um, right now, they're, most of the utilization is not acute. Our core business and why I think this is potentially exciting and exciting that's starting here, I think that, you know, since Uber and Lyft and others and some of the delivery services have figured out how to utilize technology to improve certain service categories, I think people have been waiting for something to come along in healthcare. And what we're able to do using professionals like EMTs and nurses who are distributed throughout the city and available to care for people, combined with being able to access a doctor via video, we think we've created the ability to, to, to shift and, and create the equivalent of an urgent care visit in the home at a cost that works for payers and people. And so we're, we're excited about this potential. New Orleans is our first market. We're a New Orleans-based company, but um, I think the long-term ambition is, is, to, is to be a disruptive player in the healthcare space. And, I think looking at this problem of ED utilization, particularly for Medicaid patients, is a first step. But over time, uh, we expect to evolve to be able to handle a broader range of cases. And Chris, let me ask you, you're, um, you've got this business, you've had success in other businesses. How do you market yourself? First off, you do this kind of thing. You get the word out. You talk about it um, everywhere you can. I've met with probably every uh, political figure, sheriff's office, um, DA that I can uh, arrange meetings with. You meet one-on-one -on -one with physicians and therapists, psychiatrist groups, and then of course all the low-hanging fruit like the hospitals, the ERs. Um, and I think what really affects things most as far as a brand is the, um, uh, the ability to provide great care, and that's really what sells everything. So in the very beginning, like with the hospice, I did TV, I did radio, but eventually the word just got out. And when the word got out, we were swamped. And that just kind of takes a critical mass, in my opinion. So you, you do, you tell everyone you can tell. You, you shout it from the rafters. But providing the great care is what really spreads it. So um, the fact that we have a very high-end building and we, we think we're providing um, from a care model something that nobody else is providing in the state, I think helps a lot. But again, Proving that to the industry is really what it's going to take. And Justin, tying you two together, I would assume all of your responders have the drug that everybody talks about, Narcan, 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'm excited to hear about what you're doing um, because um, everywhere you go in the state and anywhere in the country when you talk about healthcare now, addiction and behavioral health is front and center. Yeah. And the reality is that we just don't have enough resources right now we don't. to handle the problem. And we can't and, um, imprison our way out of the problem either. We definitely we cannot imprison our way out of the problem. And um, we treat a lot of things that are behavioral addiction issues in the wrong part of the healthcare system. So right. I, I applaud anyone that's adding capacity and it's something that as we're as we're launching and, and plotting our strategy, trying to figure out just how to find the behavioral health resources for the problems that are out there is a huge problem. So I'm really excited to hear that, that about the capacity you're building and adding to, to this community. Thank you, man. Thank I had you. a feeling you guys were on the same team. Yeah, I think we are. <laughs> in New Orleans and in Louisiana, we're used to seeing ourselves compared unfavorably to other states and cities. But in the medical field, we're seeing a complete turnaround. Not only are we keeping up with other states and cities, but there are a number of medical technology and medical research companies here in New Orleans who are now world leaders. Uh, Chris and Justin, your medical companies are part of this groundswell. You're doing pioneering and life-saving work. Thank you both for taking the time to join me today on Out to Lunch. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. My guests on Out to Lunch today have been Chris McMahon, the president and CEO of Long Branch Recovery, and Justin Dangle, CEO and co-founder of Ready Responders. You can find out more about Chris's rehab and Justin's responders by following the links on our website, itsneworleans.com. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. Our researcher is Maggie Mendel. You can listen to the show and to past episodes of Out to Lunch wherever you get podcasts and at itsneworleans.com. If you want to know what we look like, you can find photos from this show on itsneworleans.com and It's New Orleans Facebook page. The photos were taken by Calistia Belinsky. For more information about Calistia, including wedding photography, visit calistiaphotography.com. Out to Lunch is a production of I Know Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com and WWNO 89.9 FM. I'm Peter Raschuti. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you again next week around the table here at Commander's Palace for more business New Orleans style on Out to Lunch. Out to Lunch is recorded live over lunch at Commander's Palace in New Orleans. Commander's Palace serves lunch Monday to Friday, jazz brunch on Saturday and Sunday with live music, and dinner seven nights a week. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. And by Basics Swimming Gym and Basics Underneath Fine Lingerie, the It's New Orleans Happy Hour podcast. And by Orange Theory Fitness, delivering fitness results for a healthier world. 